In Peter's Acts 2 sermon, he addresses thousands of people who had spontaneously gathered in the streets of Jerusalem as the result of 120 men and women who invaded those streets proclaiming the mighty deeds of God. However, these people were not just any people. This host of men and women were not a hodgepodge of various people groups collected from the world over. These men and women were Jews. They were Jews who just happened to be at the Jewish festival of Pentecost as that festival always drew myriads of Jews to Jerusalem. And it just so happened that the Jewish people as a whole had already been discussing the idea that the Messiah had come. Practically everyone connected to Judah and Judaism had been talking about Jesus. So from the beginning of Peter's sermon, he associates the events of the upper room and the following evangelism explosion with Daniel's prophecy in which he said that the time would come when God would pour out His Spirit upon all who chose to follow Him. What happened on the Jerusalem streets that day as a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is nothing short of incredible, and everyone in Jerusalem wanted to be in on it. However, Peter quickly moves from his treatise on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to the Messiah who had promised to send the Spirit for the purpose of inhabiting and filling the lives of all who would become his followers. Right on the heels of visions and dreams and wonders in the sky and wonders on the earth below, along with blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. Peter jumps into a theological tome on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there are those for whom that homiletical approach is, is uh, rather disappointing. And yet, beginning last week, we chose to pause with Peter and consider what would become one of the most significant and foundational statements in the Bible. Do you remember what it is? Here it is. Jesus Christ stands at the center of the Christian movement, not only in the first century, but now in the 21st century. You take away Jesus, and nothing else matters. Take away Jesus, and there's no reason to believe. Minus Jesus out of the equation, and you come up with zero. Take away Jesus, and we're the biggest fools who ever lived. Take away Jesus and you take away our message. Take away Jesus and you take away our confidence. Take away Jesus and everything falls apart. Take away Jesus and the house of Christendom is torn asunder. Well, since Peter preached to Jews in Acts 2, he displayed an anxiousness to make sure that he connects these Messiah-seeking Jews to Jesus. Well, let's read about it, beginning with verse 22 of Acts 2. Stand with me as we honor the Word of God. Acts 2, beginning with verse 22. Men of Israel, 
Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. You may be seated. I pointed out to you one week ago that Peter placed Jesus within the context of history. He referred to Jesus as Jesus the Nazarene. That is a specific man associated with a specific location. Jesus is not to be seen as a religious idea. Jesus is not to be postulated as a figment of our imaginations. Jesus is not to be viewed as an esoteric phenomenon of the ancient past. Jesus actually lived in a specific period of time in history. Jesus stands as an actual historical figure who adorned the life of first century Israel. And so the message that Peter gives is that Jesus really lived. And that Jesus summons us to follow him in the 21st century in the same way he summoned Peter's first century audience to follow him. However, Peter is not done with his pause regarding Jesus. Look at verse 22 again in Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst as you yourself know. So right out of the gate, Peter places Jesus within the context of history. Jesus really lived. Jesus really walked among men. But immediately following that foundational statement, Peter points also to the attesting miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Jesus. Last week, I entitled the message, Behold the Man. This week, I entitled the message, Behold the Miracles. Now, I want you to notice in verse 22, the word translated attested. A man attested to you by God. Another translation says, a man pointed out of God unto you. Another says, a man whose mission from God was proved. Yet another says, a man accredited to you from God. Goodspeed says, a man whom God commended to you. The New English Bible says it like this, a man singled out by God and made known to you. The idea is that of authentication. 
We could use words like verification, certification, substantiation, confirmation, validation, or document or, or documentation. We could even use the word endorsement. If you have ever asked the question, how do I know this is real? Then you know why Peter is saying what he is saying. If you've ever watched shows like Pawn Stars or American Pickers, then you know why Peter is saying what he is saying. Authentication and documentation mean everything when it comes to value. The greater the documentation, the greater the worth. The greater the certification, the greater the price. The greater the authentication, then the greater the value. So in Peter's effort to connect his listeners to Jesus as the Messiah, he offers proof of authenticity. And so what is his proof? Verse 22 tells us, miracles and wonders and signs. Say that with me. Miracles and wonders and signs. Now look at the word translated miracles for a moment. That is the same word translated power in verse 8 of Acts 1. Where Jesus said to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The word translated power contains the idea of capacity or ability or potency. And this particular word can be applied to the whole range of life. The physical life, the spiritual life, the intellectual life, animal life, plant life, even the cosmos. Indeed, Jesus demonstrated power over food, as in Mark chapter 6. Jesus demonstrated power over weather, as demonstrated in Mark 4. Over the animal kingdom, as demonstrated in Luke 5. Over bodies of water, as demonstrated in Mark 6. Over the forces of darkness, as demonstrated in Mark 9. Over sickness, as demonstrated in Mark 1 and Mark 2. And even over death, as demonstrated in John 11. This particular word is closely associated with an authority that has been delegated. So Peter references this authority, this delegate authority in verse 22. When he says, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. What does that mean? God was at work both in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ operated under the authority of God. In Luke 4, after preaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, Luke reports that the people were amazed at his teaching for his message was with authority. Before leaving the synagogue, Jesus cast out a demon that had possessed the life of a man who happened to be in the audience that day. And again, Luke reports, amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another saying, what is this message for with authority 
and power. He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Did you notice the connection between power and authority? Power is the same word translated miracles in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus exercised the power of God in performing miracles, which in turn are to be seen as authenticating events regarding Christ's identity. That's Peter's proof. You know the miracles. You saw the miracles. You saw the signs. You saw the wonders. They are God's signature that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah. Now, for an additional moment, let's take a look at wonders and signs mentioned by Peter along with miracles. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. Now, in the Old Testament, and remember, when Peter preached this message, the Bible that he had was the Old Testament Scripture. Not one word of the New Testament Scripture had yet been written down before this moment. And whatever Peter is saying, he is going to be referring back to the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, the word combination, wonders and signs, appear multiple times with the majority of those times referencing Israel's exodus from Egypt. For example, in verse 4 of Exodus 7, God said, I will pardon Pharaoh or harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. In looking back on the Exodus experience 40 years later, Moses wrote in verse 34 of Deuteronomy 4, Has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Joshua referenced the signs and wonders of Israel's exodus from Egypt, as did Nehemiah as did several of the psalmists, as did Isaiah, as did Jeremiah, as did Daniel and others. Some of those signs included a staff that turned into a serpent, water that turned into blood, frogs, flies, and locusts covering the land of Egypt. Some of those signs and wonders included darkness falling over the earth as well as the death angel marching through the nation of Egypt. These wonders and these signs had a revelatory characteristic about them. They demonstrated that God was at work through Moses and the people of Israel. 
And so powerful were these wonders and signs that the Egyptian Pharaoh ultimately relented and permitted the nation of Israel to exit. Then came the wonders and signs again, including the column of smoke that led the Israelites by day and the pillar of fire that led them by night. And don't forget the most well-known wonder uh, uh, and sign of them all, the splitting of the Red Sea with Israel marching across on dry ground and the Egyptian army being destroyed when the waters of the Red Sea fell in upon them. More than four decades later, following that moment, a prostitute who had lived in Jericho gave this testimony. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now I want to show you something incredible. These wonders and signs that occurred in connection to Israel's exodus from Egypt demonstrated that God was at work among them. They demonstrated that God was at work when He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They demonstrated, they demonstrated God's involvement when He would put them, position them in the promised land where they would rub shoulders with the world and become a pathway for the world to walk straight into the kingdom of God. However, the story becomes even more incredible. The miracles and the wonders and the signs performed by God through Jesus demonstrated that God was at work in and through the life of Jesus so that He might deliver us from slavery to self, then set us on a platform by which we shine a light on the pathway that shows how men and women can walk straight into the kingdom of God. Kapow! Now folks, if that is not powerful, if that is not motivational for the believer, then there's no such thing as power and motivation. God performed mighty works that He might demonstrate He is indeed among men and women and for those who follow Him that they become conduits or channels or raceways of the, of the kingdom of God to men and women. That is, that is essentially our purpose statement which you see in the foyer every time you come in this place. And it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Now I would like to offer a uh, confession to you today if you would allow me to do that. Seven days ago, when I began to study this passage, most likely because of uh, my training 
and because of my own personality, I read this part, the signs and wonders and miracles in verse 22, and I immediately put on my apologetics hat, which is defending what the Bible says. I mean, here is Peter, a rookie preacher, naively setting forth the miracles and the wonders and the signs as performed by Christ, as if anyone would believe him. I mean, isn't that kind of what we face in audiences today? And so I had kind of a transference from the audiences to which I preach today to the audience to which Peter was preaching back then. And I said to myself, wouldn't it have been smarter and wiser to have begun with something more reasonable? Something that would be a little easier to accept. Something that would be a little easier for people to get their their head wrapped around. I mean, could it be that Peter could not have made a greater blunder on his first time in the pulpit? And then it hit me like a two-by-four across the back of my head, which sort of reminded me of my dad. Peter did not have to prove to his audience the miracles and the wonders and the signs. But why not? The answer is easy, and it should have been obvious to me right out of the box. The people in the crowd that day were Jews. They were Jews who had been looking for the Messiah to come. They were Jews who knew from the Old Testament scriptures that when the Messiah came, he would perform miracles and wonders and signs. Many of the Jews in the crowd this day had been eyewitnesses to the miracles and wonders and signs performed by Christ. No doubt many of the people whom Jesus had healed were in the throng on that day listening to Peter preach. And even if there were those there who had not witnessed the miracles and wonders and signs as performed by Jesus, they had likely heard about it from those who had or from those they trusted. So in reality... This swarm of men and women on those Jerusalem streets that day were themselves the proof of the miracles and signs and wonders that they were genuine. These people, thousands of them, became the authenticating evidence that God had been at work both in and through Christ, and that in fact Jesus was and is the Messiah. Nobody in the crowd raised their hands that day and said, now Peter, we need to do a little bit of apologetics. We need to get some of our best apologists down here, and let's talk about these signs and these miracles and these wonders. They did not need any of that. Because they had been there. They had seen them. And they themselves by the thousands could give, could give witness to the things performed through Christ. Now let's go back to verse 22 for a moment. Jesus the Nazarene 
a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Look at this. Just as you yourselves also know. One translation says, as you personally know. The Greek language has two words for knowing something. And Peter used the word know, as you know. One of those words is gnosko, G-I-N-O-S-K-O. Uh, don't worry, there's not going to be a test next week to see if you remember this. But for those who do, I may have a gift card for you next week or not. <laughs> One of those words is gnosko, which refers to knowing something experientially. Uh, for example, in John 17, 3, Jesus defined eternal life as knowing the one true God and His Son whom He sent. So in this phrase, Jesus tells us that eternal life is knowing God and His Son in our experience. It is gnosko. It is not merely intellectual knowledge. It is not merely the knowledge of an acquaintance, which is the meaning of oida, O-I-D-A, which is the other Greek word for knowing something. Eternal life is knowing in your experience God and His Son whom He sent. There are lots of people who know Jesus intellectually, but they do not know Him in His in their experience. Now, oddly enough, the word Peter uses in Acts 2.22 is oida, which you yourselves oida, which you yourselves know. It is the word for knowing something intellectually or as an acquaintance. Now, as I was studying this, Peter's use of oida was especially puzzling to me because the definite article in the Greek text also accompanies this word to know, which suggests a translation that goes like the New American Standard Bible, as for you, you yourselves know. You are not unaware of the signs and the wonders and the, the miracles performed by Jesus. So I'm seeing gnosko in John 17, 3. I'm expecting gnosko to show up again in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. But it is not gnosko. It is not knowing in their experience. It is knowing intellectually or knowing as an acquaintance. And like Grand Andy Griffith used to say, uh, I had to do some studying on that thing. It wasn't thing, it was thing. I had to do some studying on that thing. And I really did some contemplating and praying through this. Well, here's the result of my study. Yes, Peter's audience knew about the miracles and the wonders and the signs. But the significance of those miracles and wonders and signs had yet to travel from their heads to their hearts.
So Peter is leading his listeners to take the next step. Peter is telling his listeners to know in their heads intellectually and let it drop into their hearts, which is exactly what thousands of them did that very day. Can you imagine the offer call? Can you imagine thousands of people letting what they, had, they knew intellectually about Jesus now go to the very deepest part of their being, and so they begin to stake their life on Jesus Christ? Wow. My dad had an intellectual knowledge of Jesus for 27 years of his life. When he was 27... It went from his head to his heart, and it drastically changed him. He went from oida to gnosko, and it transformed his life. Well, let's bring this passage into this moment in 2020. Right now. You are being encouraged by thousands of people who witnessed the mighty works of Christ. Right now, these thousands of men and women are urging you to do what they did. Let it go from your head to your heart. Throw in with Christ. And with those thousands of men and women who were there, join in this great line of people who through the ages have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. Behold the miracles. There are thousands of people who witnessed them and saw them, many of them even healed and a part of those works of power. And they say to you, no matter what you know up here, it's not going to help you until it gets to here. And it is very possible that there are those here this morning who maybe have been in church most of their lives, but all they have is oida. All they have is an intellectual acquaintance kind of knowledge regarding Jesus Christ. And it is time this morning to go from oida to gnosko, to a deep experiential Knowledge from knowing Christ in the most secret places of your being. That is what Peter was asking these men and women to do on this day in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And that is what Peter and these thousands of men and women and the Holy Spirit today, and I, along with the Spirit, are asking you to let it go from here to here so that it revolutionizes your life. That is the call. You are not being asked to join in rituals 
and regulations and pageantry. You were being asked to stake your life on Jesus of Nazareth. The man who was attested by God via miracles and wonders and signs. And this you yourself know. So what are you going to do today? Are you going to trust your life to Jesus Christ? Are you going to give Him entrance to your life? Are you going to enter that narrow gate that few find and become a follower of Jesus Christ? I would love to help you make that decision, if I might. And following our time here together today, we'll dismiss with a song that will be sung by all of us. And if you want to talk about taking it from the head to the heart, I'm I'm going to be hanging out here. And I want you to hang out. We'll find each other. Dan, our associate pastor, will be here. Nick, our youth pastor, will be here. Anyone in that booth back there, right down to our IT director, our worship director, can all speak to you about going from the head to the heart. If that's something you desire, just hang out. And if you're thinking about perhaps becoming a member of Countryside, boy, we would love for that to happen. It just thrills me when God calls men and women not only to faith in Christ, but when He calls men and women to join with us here. And maybe today is your time. Let's pray together. Father, we could be doing other things this morning. But I believe that you have called us all to this moment. And I believe that as you stirred hearts 2,000 years ago, you were stirring hearts today. And Lord, we, we may not have thousands who come to know you personally and intimately. But Lord, there may be one. There may be two. And we know that for Jesus, he is willing to leave the 90 and 9 and go to the one. And we know that there's more rejoicing in heaven over the one who comes in than over the many who are already in. So do something mighty among us today. As we allow the scripture to stretch across the ages and sink deep within our heart. 
where would we be without you? Lord, we don't know, and we don't want to know. We long for you desperately. Now speak to us today. Move among us today in a powerful way. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Mm-hmm.